Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Professor Tamsin Ford discussing mental health and its relationship to education. Thank you. I'm amazed to see so many people here on such a beautiful day, and I'm painfully aware that I'm all standing between you and a cold beer sitting outside in the sun. And I guess you're all here because, for some reason or other, you're interested in either mental health or children or education. So I'm going to hopefully not do death by PowerPoint, but I have got some slides, and I'm going to talk you through what's happening with mental health in our population, the interface between school and mental health, which is hugely important, and everything I'm presenting is evidence-based, and it's not all, but mostly work that I and um, my team have been involved, a lot of it done here in Exeter. So... There are all kinds of lurid headlines that we see repeatedly. In fact, there was a freedom of information request from the Guardian newspaper to NHS Trust suggesting that referrals to child mental health services have rocketed over the last year, which I'm sure is true. But that is often extrapolated to what is almost a moral panic about, oh, the youth of today, it's appalling. And in fact, the evidence is a bit more subtle. So this paper was led from UCL, University College London, and what they did was they got data from really massive surveys, tens of thousands of people, either young people or parents who'd filled in questionnaires about their children's mental health, and the questionnaires were scientifically robust. They weren't the same people every year, it's a different sample, but it's a random massive sample, and at that level it ought to even out for various differences that would happen year to year. And they didn't show a massive increase. And in fact, there wasn't a consistent, on the validated scores about how children were doing, there wasn't an increase. Where there was, it was interesting in that it was emotional problems, which I'll come back to later. But actually what has definitely gone up is people's willingness to say to a researcher, I'm worried about my child's mental health or the young person saying, I'm worried I've got a mental health problem, which is a different thing altogether. And that's a good thing. We have highly effective treatments for people who have poor mental health, if only we funded them and made them accessible. I'm going to talk a little bit now about trends over time amongst school-aged children. And this is from a massive national survey. So we measured any disorder and I mean mental disorder, the the government funded these studies and what they wanted to know is how many people have a clinical level of problem. And we looked at several kinds, so emotional disorders, by which I mean anxiety and depression, and, and mental health suffers from problems that we use the same words to describe a normal human experience. All of us get anxious. We'll get anxious about different things and to a different degree, but if you have an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder, it means you cannot function. It's getting in the way of your life or the distress is extreme. Behavioural problems, again, we could talk for a whole hour about whether there should be a a mental health diagnosis about children's behaviour. 
and often it's very much to do with the situation that they're in. But if you fulfill criteria for a behavioural disorder in childhood, you have an increased risk of every adult mental health problem there is, including anxiety and depression, and not just substance misuse or personality disorder that perhaps would be less of a surprise. And we also looked at hyperactivity disorder, so ADHD broadly, but we used for the data because the government wanted to us to, we used something called the International Classification of Diseases. We're up to the 10th edition, ICD-11 is about to come out, and that has a narrower diagnosis of ADHD than the more commonly used American one, in fact, uses the term ADHD. So these are a slightly severer subgroup. And then finally, there are the less common disorders. So children who have an autism spectrum condition, eating disorders, tick disorders, and a few other very, very rare disorders. Um, they're, they're, well, they're rare in children. They're not necessarily rare in adults, like um, bipolar disorder. So we should be really proud of these data. They are the biggest surveys that have been done anywhere in the world of children's mental health that are a single phase. And what I mean by that is every single child in the survey had a multi-informant assessment. So their parents provided data, the young person, if they were aged over 11, provided data. And if the family agreed, a questionnaire was mailed to the teacher. And of those who got a questionnaire, about 80% of the teachers returned them. And then clinical raters put all those responses together. And the assessment we use is called the Development and Wellbeing Assessment. A lot of thought and a lot of effort went into measuring them. So the children and the families gave up probably 40 minutes, maybe even an hour of their time to have an interview. Teachers filled in questionnaires. The teacher questionnaire is shorter, but that's probably still about 20 minutes. And then a small team of clinical raters, most of whom were based in Exeter, put all those data together. Now, the other clever thing that this assessment does is it combines not only different informants, but it combines very structured questions. So, you know, have you been depressed for two weeks? Yes, no. Can you cheer up? Yes, no. You know, it's very constrained. And those are really, really reliable. If you ask the same person lots of times, you'll get the same response. If you ask people with similar problems, you, you will get the same response. The trouble is you can't pick up where someone's just completely misunderstood you. And that means they're not always valid. And my favourite example of a case that illustrates this is a little boy in the first survey we did in 1999, who the computer counted all these structured questions and said this little lad looks like he's got obsessive compulsive disorder but this interview if there is a problem ask the um, teacher the parent or the young person what the nature of their problem is and what they've done about it and his mother said well he he plays football in the house all the time now that doesn't sound to me like a lad who's got a mental disorder it sounds to me like a lad who needs more time outside and perhaps a football club to go to and it was happening every day it was destroying family relationships you know it, it met all the criteria because she'd misunderstood what an obsession is so this assessment is very neat for a number of reasons but and I think particularly those who work outside health services will be very familiar with this doctors and nurses and other health professionals except perhaps psychologists are trained to think has someone got a disorder or do they not have a disorder and of course that's not how it is so these are the self-report the young people 
the parents and the teachers report on a score called the Strengths and Difficulties Questionnaire, which some of you may have come across. It's used all over the place. It's very, very robust. And what's really interesting is how different those shapes are of those graphs, because actually they're all asked the same question. And I think what this says to me is we should really listen to teachers when they're saying a child has a problem, because actually they're much less likely to be giving... These are the same children, I should say, that this curve has slightly fewer reports because very young children can't report reliably, so they were only asked from age 11. But these two are on the same sample, pretty much. And yet teachers are scoring children lower. As an epidemiologist, as someone who studies population health, that's fascinating because it just shows who you ask as well as what you ask is really important. So we have three massive surveys in the UK, although the last one was just England. These surveys are enormous, so that's 10,500 children, and for every child there was a parent, and for 80% of them there was a teacher. The other thing to point is there is an increase in school age between 1999 and 2017, but it's small. It's not this dramatic crisis, although I would still argue one, one in 12 of our school age children has a disorder that impairs them. And as the graphs I've just shown you shows for every one of those, there are probably three or four others who are struggling, but they're not quite at that cut point. And this increase is almost completely explained by having an emotional disorder. The purple line, that's the one that's increased. Behaviour problems have stayed pretty stable, as have ADHD. And if I put the other less common disorders on, it would um, be very messy, but it would show you the same thing. When I tell people I'm a psychiatrist, people, if they don't run away screaming because they think I can see in their head, which I can't, by the way, they say children don't need psychiatrists. Well, I think you're probably here because you realise that actually children can have quite significant mental health problems and that actually they pay a very high developmental price. The next thing they, they say when I sort of try and convince them is, oh, well, they just grow out of it. These data show that they don't. So this is parent-reported symptoms for children with autism, ADHD, conduct problems and emotional problems. The 99 survey was followed up in 2002 and there is a little drop. Believe you me, it's not statistically significant. So in other words, the symptoms, and I could show you the same for the next survey in 2004, but also, more importantly, I think, the impact persists. So these children don't grow out of it without help. So those are the trends. And these data, if you're interested, um, they were published by NHS Digital. And there's huge amounts of reports and even Excel files if you're mathematically inclined and like poking around data sets. Bottom line, as I said, one, one in eight 5 to 19-year-olds have an impairing mental health condition. One in 20 of them have more than one impairing mental health condition and their ability to function reduces if you've got more than one problem. It's not rocket science. Actually, that half have more than one problem is what we've consistently found in these survey. And it's not random, it's patterned. So anxiety and depression are very common together. So if you're dealing with a child who's frightened, think about their mood as well. Depression and behaviour problems are also quite common, particularly young men. So if you're working in a school or a youth club and there's suddenly a lad who's stroppy, irritable, not turning up, a change of behaviour, have a think about what else might be going on for that young man because actually young men in particular are not great at expressing their feelings. And ADHD goes with different kinds of behaviour problems, but it is not a random association and it's quite common. 
if you go to specialist services or alternative provision in schools, you will find children with more and more difficulties. And they're often dealing you know, with a lot of problems. This last survey was unusual because we extended the age range up to 19 instead of just compulsory school age, 16 as it was when we started. And we went down to two to four-year-olds. And we didn't know what we were going to find because very few places in the world have surveyed very young children. The government would regard these statistics as experimental. But I don't, actually. I think the measures fit. I think once you go below two, it becomes much harder to assess the mental health of a very, very young child because they are so much of a dyad at that point and they can't tell you very much. So I think these are quite shocking. One in 18 of our two to four-year-olds are significantly impaired in relation to their mental health. So there's a gradient with age. And in fact, the group we should be really worried about is our older teenagers. And that is a signal that's also come out of the adult mental health surveys that go down to age 16. So there's a little bit of overlap. Overall, boys and girls are about evenly affected, but there are differences in different age groups. So in the younger age groups, there's a predominance of boys. And then older teenage girls have been designated a high-risk group by the Department of Health on the strength of these data. And of those who have a disorder of that, almost a quarter, half of them are self-harming. So that's where those frightening statistics about people presenting to services are coming. And that difference by age and gender is partly due to the types of problems that differ slightly by age and gender. So amongst the two to four-year-olds, you have more, less common disorders. And at this age group, it would be the developmental problems like autism spectrum presenting, also behaviour and a tiny bit of ADHD, which becomes much more prominent, reaches sort of the peak prevalence in the primary school years, and you start to see more emotional disorders. Now, that might be an artefact of very, very young children, can't tell you. (laughs) But as far as we can measure it, emotional disorders increase steadily and peak in the teenage years into the early 20s. And in fact, the peak age for the onset of depression is the late teens. I couldn't talk about mental health and young people without talking about social media. Um, I'm not going to spend very long on it because actually we don't know. We have a real lack of longitudinal data. So we have cross-sectional associations. So in this survey, we did ask about social media. But you can imagine that the mental health assessment takes about an hour. Then there are all these background variables that we're asking about. There is a limit to how much detail you can ask. So we just ask about social media but that could be whatsapp finding out what your homework is or instagram showing people a selfie there's a world of difference between those experiences so we don't know there is definitely an association when you measure both at the same time but we don't know if it's the children with disorder are less engaged and and impaired in their everyday life so they're doing less and what do you do when you've not got anything to do you pick up your phone and play on it or their poor mental health is because they're spending more time on social media so we really need some longitudinal data talking to experts in this area and I don't profess to be one I think we need to think sensibly I don't think there's any evidence for limiting screen time within reason but I think you need to think about the specific needs of the children that you're with be they your own or or in a professional capacity the content that they're accessing and the context in which they're doing so. And there's no doubt there are some really vile 
sites that promote anorexia as a way of life or self-harm as a way of coping with things. I have no doubt they're unhelpful to people, but we haven't measured it. Interestingly, those with a disorder felt that social media was having more of an impact on themselves, which is an interesting observation. But is that because they're feeling worse in themselves and they're struggling to function? They were also more likely to be reporting having been psychobullied. That's almost half of the girls. You know, so we've got some girls out there with some really toxic relationships. And actually cyberbullying often went along with other kinds of bullying. It did happen in isolation, but not often. But also they were more likely to say that they had bullied others. And peer relationships are something that, if they're poor, promote the persistence of mental health problems in these data sets when we study them going forward over time. One in 20 of our 11 to 16-year-olds have self-harmed or attempted suicide. 15% of those in their later teens and a strong association, although we're measuring both at the same time with having a mental health condition. Although, interestingly, there isn't a strong relationship with what kind of mental health condition you have. So here we have any disorder. And if you look, it's not markedly different. There's a little bit of a peak with depression, but it's fairly common across all of them. And it's highest in those who have more problems, but because they have more problems, they're struggling to a greater extent. Coming to schools, it won't surprise anyone who works in schools that children with a disorder are more likely to be out of school, to have been excluded. And actually, those with ADHD are really likely to have repeated exclusion. So I'm now going to talk rather about than today's data, about the data from 2004 and the follow-up data, to talk about the interrelationship between exclusion from school and mental health. So what we have here is the probability of being excluded in 2007 against what, what, how the parents reported on their child's mental health just using the questionnaire at baseline. And as you can see, it accelerates, particularly at the point where you're getting into the realm of clinical level difficulties. But actually, we found that both ways around. So if you had, we took out the children who had a disorder because that we know they're more at risk of being excluded. If you didn't have a disorder and you'd reported a, an exclusion in 2004, you were more likely to be in poor, you were more likely to have worse mental health three years down the line. So it works both ways. And I think that's because school is a very, very important environment. So using these data, there's a question in the Strengths and Difficulties questionnaire, which basically says, do you think this child has a mental health problem? And we took the possible answers, which are no or not really, and yes and severe, to divide it them into four groups about the answers of this to this question and whether or not they had a disorder. So you've got, thankfully, the vast majority of children don't have a disorder and nobody's worried about them. They're doing fine as far as we know. Then you have a subclinical group who don't have a disorder but a parent and or a teacher is worried about them. You have a small, thankfully, group where they do have a disorder but neither teacher nor parent is worried about them. And then you have the ones with the disorder and, and people are worried about them. And generally, it's both parent and teacher. Now, I went into this after clinical experience where I had a whole rash of children referred with autism spectrum or ADHD that had been missed. And there were real difficulties in school, but it was being conceptualized as de deliberate and willful misbehavior rather than behavior that stemmed from these neurodevelopmental conditions and if you get in at the right point and put the right supports in the school can cope and so can the child. 
Um, so I naively thought, well, let's see if, you know, if we pick up loads of children who are, their problems are not being recognised because that's empirical data to say, look, if a child's on a track towards exclusion, we need to stop and think about what might be going on. But that's not what we found. So the children with unrecognised disorder were more likely, they were about twice as likely to be excluded as the children who were doing fine. You know, it was even more, it was about four times for those with recognised disorder. So we're not seeing a problem with recognition. We've demonstrated this in other data sets, including a small sample of children who we collected in Devon as they were heading towards permanent exclusion. And that is adjusting for all these background factors. So we've accounted for age, gender, social class, neighbourhood deprivation, ethnicity, etc. All of that's taken into account. And the children with a disorder at baseline were still um, more likely to be excluded later on. And I was wrong about the disorders that were unrecognised. They were mostly emotional, not the neurodevelopment. There were a sprinkling of the neurodevelopmental disorders that weren't recognised. And there were some behaviour disorders that weren't recognised, but it's the emotional disorders. So if you're working in relation to children and there is a change, think about anxiety, think about depression. There is a huge overlap between special educational needs and poor mental health. And actually, in a way, we might be double counting. So these data come from the teacher who reported whether or not the child had special needs, but we didn't have data on which kind of special needs. Nearly two-thirds of those with ADHD have some kind of special need. Now, that might be the ADHD, or it might be a learning problem. It might be other things. But if you have any disorder, about a third of them have special educational needs. So this is something we're trying to get our hands on the data because, dear, the Department for Education want us to un unpick how much of this is pure mental health, if there is such a thing, and how much of this relates to other educational problems that are going on. There is a very strong attendance between association. This is cross-sectional data, but we've demonstrated it longitudinally as well between 2004 and 2007, between having an emotional disorder and attendance. So it seems stronger for depression, and depression is very, very rare in primary age children. It happens, but it's very rare, which I think is what's driving that. So you've got primary in blue dots, secondary is red dots. This is a diagnosis of depression, and these are whether you've got slightly raised high or very high difficulties on the strengths and difficulties questionnaire. But it works the other way too. So if you have poor attendance, you are quite likely to have an emotional disorder following down the line. So these things are entwined. And of course, the missing variable that we don't really have a handle on, and we only have two data points, we really need something in the middle to test it, is children's physical health. So both anxiety and depression can cause tummy aches, headaches. Children can have really severe diarrhoea to the point that they stop growing or even lose weight. That can be totally driven by anxiety. Adrenaline and the stress response is hugely physical as well as psychological. But equally, if you have a chronic long-term health condition like diabetes or epilepsy or cancer, then your mental health is at risk. That's a very well-known association as well. And just to emphasise how crucial schools are, they're essentially our first-line mental health service. And that's not something that we train or support teachers 
in doing. This replicates every single survey we do. So this has not changed since 1999 in the first survey. And actually what I demonstrated then was the burden on teachers as the first line, but also specialist educational resources was huge. And actually you were as likely to go to an education specialist as you were to go to a health specialist for your mental health. And there was very little overlap. So teachers tend to refer to specialist educational professionals because that's who they have access to. And GPs tend to refer to paediatricians and to CAMs. And there's much less crosstalk than you would expect from this vulnerable group. The costs of that in terms of hours of teacher time are huge. And if we could divert a little bit of that into something therapeutic, we could support our teachers and also our children. And finally, to emphasise the importance of teachers and teaching relationships, we had a question in the 2004 survey, which was about had a child, according to the parents, so it's not an ideal measure, but it was a sort of three-level question about having a poor teacher-pupil relationship in 2004. And then we studied these outcomes three years later. So whether or not they had a, a mental health condition, whether or not they had conduct disorder or behaviour problems, and in primary school, how their family was functioning. Now, children who have a mental health disorder are often very hard to deal with, particularly in a classroom system. So we adjusted for baseline problems using clever statistics. But that doesn't work properly, so we also took them out. We couldn't take out family function because it was a score, and it's slightly arbitrary where you say it's OK or not OK. These figures are something called odds ratios with their 95% confidence interval. So that gives the range of values that if you repeated this lots and lots of times, 95% of the time you get an answer in that range. And where the odds ratio doesn't, the confidence interval doesn't cross one, that is a statistically significant association. So we're getting a hint that in primary school, poor teacher-pupil relationships might be contributing to new onset of conduct disorder and mental health conditions. What teachers do is really, really important. However, if we're picking up a signal three years down the line, these data were collected in the spring term because that's when it's easier for teachers to respond. So we adjusted for baseline because I showed you that slide where it's not you have a disorder or you don't, it's not two groups, it's much more nuanced than that. And for primary school children, mostly it went away. However, for secondary school children, it didn't. There wasn't an impact on family function, but there was on exclusion. So it's possible that where relationships between teachers and young people in schools go wrong, that actually it's stacking up a whole load of problems, probably for the teachers themselves. But the flip side of that is if we can support our teachers to build good relationships, particularly with some of our trickiest and most vulnerable children, actually that may improve everybody's mental health. And I'm not going to talk about it, but um, we have, as a team, um, just finished a trial called STARS, where we took a classroom management course um, called The Incredible Years, which is very similar to the parenting course um, that many of you, also called The Incredible Years, that many of you may have heard of. So six days out of the classroom for a teacher, spread a month apart so the teachers can play around with it and see what happens um, in their context. And it's about creating positive relationships, attending to the behaviour that you want to see, being proactive. So if you have Johnny who can't cope with stopping computer time, you give him lots of warnings that it's coming and then 
distract him and divert him rather than just having a row when he won't stop. And then you praise him for doing what, he, what um, you asked him, he's more likely to do it next time. We demonstrated a transient impact on all the children's mental health at the end of that nine months. It didn't follow into the next year. But more encouragingly, we, we detected a bigger effect that sustained for 30 months. So it sustained into the third academic year after one teacher in each school had been trained that they were exposed to for probably less than six months. There was a sustained improvement in general mental health. There were sustained improvements in concentration with obvious implications what that might mean for academic work. And there were sustained improvements in the kind of low-level disruption that none of these measures really get at, but actually that's what matters to teachers. And to school. you know, it's the calling out, it's the not paying attention, it's the swinging on the chair. That decreased and stayed down. And to sum up, I think the vast majority of our kids are doing fine. I think we have a kind of perfect conflagration of some factors. So there is an increase, particularly in emotional disorders. It won't be genetic. It's happened over 20 years. So that means there is something in our environment that is not great for the emotional well-being of our young people. And we need to work out what that is. It might or might not be social media, but at this point, we really don't know. But it's not this huge increase that you read about in the headlines. However, there are more people coming forward for services. And as I said before, we have some highly effective treatments, but we don't have enough people to deliver them. And during the first decade of this century, there was lots of funds put into the voluntary sector, to schools, to youth clubs, who were all beginning to do bits of mental health work, and they've all lost their funding. So just as more people are coming forward and the population rates are going up, we've suddenly got less people to offer that support. And whilst all that was going on, CAMS was not, didn't get increased funding. And so we have this perfect storm of lots of people who want help and nowhere to save them. So that is the crisis. The crisis is in funding and service provision because we're not doing what we could do to help these children. There will always be some children who, whatever we do, won't cope with mainstream provision. Their problems are just too severe, be they social, learning, mental health, or a combination thereof, which is commonly the case. And then in every school, there'll be a vulnerable group. But I think what we do at a sort of public health level can have a real impact on the size of that vulnerable group.